The Emperor of the Air by Peter Saul. Ladies and gentlemen, our venue for tonight's entertainment is Paris. Here an emperor will meet with a mouse, although you shall soon hear how both are merely men. But first, you may cheer. You may cheer, ladies and gentlemen. As a metaphorical curtain rises upon our stage, revealing the emperor of the air, the globe's greatest wirewalker, balanced, precarious, nervous upon his tightrope. Crowds below fear and jeer as he sways in the increasing breeze. He has never fallen, yet he is wobbling now, thirty feet above their shaking heads, his own eyes averted, not looking at their thrill-flushed faces, not looking at the wire, not looking at his trembling, circling feet as he backpedals his unicycle across the tightrope, not looking except directly ahead at Notre Dame's spire, keeping it fixed in his vision, whilst in his mind's innermost corner wondering what lies beyond the same's horizon. He pedals. He has done it. The Emperor of the Air has done it. The crowd is cheering now. The crowd is cheering now, ladies and gentlemen. He is, they insist, the greatest performer of the 19th century. We knew he could do it all along, they are. No, we didn't doubt it for a moment. Not even... Well, all right then, that. Just for a heartbeat as his thin shoes slipped off and fluttered to our outstretched hands. The Emperor of the Air is on their shoulders now as they bear him to the bulbs of the press and tomorrow's front page. Tomorrow's front page keeps the sewer mouse warm in the catacombs. The twisting, weaving, scum-flecked walls that comprise a tunnel network of sewers, cells, crypts, plague pits, and desperate underground holes. The last refuge of outcasts from the world above. Through the catacombs wash every type of sewage, the rejected wastes of men's bodies and their societies. The sewer mouse begs on Paris's streets. His name comes from the smell and his size. Too scrawny, that is, to pass for a sewer rat. His shortness is all that he shares with the great emperor of the air. His shortness and a natural instinct for balance. In Paris, the homeless must be industrious to survive. The competition for spare change is fierce. Some whittle keepsakes from scavenged wood. Others dangle begging cups from fishing rods, dropping them without warning in front of passers-by, breaking them from their reverie. It may raise a smile, even half a The sewer mouse has elected to become a street performer. He does his own tightrope walking along the narrow, slimy rails of bridges that one day will be covered with lovers' padlocks. He displays far less skill than the emperor of the air. The handrails are flat and wide, the width of half a shoe. When he overbalances, it is easy enough to push his weight to his right to land safely on the bridge. Sometimes an onlooker shoves him hard, toppling him leftwards through the surface of the Seine. Afterwards, the amused crowd may offer a few sympathy songs. But today, a cold wind sweeps pedestrians along before they linger. All is motion, save for one figure, squatting on the short pebble beach where the sewer mouse staggers ashore, dripping. The stranger's overdarned collar is turned up against the elements, 
His patched hat brim is pulled down across his brow. Yet, oddly, despite the cold, his bare hands are on his lap, not inside his pockets, giving an impression of warmer, richer clothing underneath. Which surely cannot be the case, Monsieur Mouse thinks. Would Monsieur spare a franc? He begins, the weary automated routine jolted out of him by the shivering. If Monsieur would be so kind. Eyes and nose, the only visible parts of Monsieur's face, stare back. Eventually, his covered mouth speaks. What makes you think I have a whole franc to spare? Look at me. Why not ask for a soup, or something? The mouse has had time to evaluate the stranger's appearance. The destitute that survived Paris's streets have sharp wits. Because Monsieur's uncovered fingers are covered with fresh marks where wings recently stacked. Because Monsieur sits upright like a man never beaten by poverty, as if Monsieur is in disguise, not wishing to be noticed. I could be discreet for a few francs should anyone question me. The mouse's words irritate the stranger. He tugs at his scarf in frustration, pulling it loose to reveal the Emperor of the Air. The sewer mouse breathes. You recognize my face? The Emperor asks, stretching the scarf tight like a balancing pole. No, but I have seen you from below. I am all of Paris. The mob has scrutinized every little gesture of your body, the way you move your feet, your arms, your elbows, searching for a hint that you are about to fall. You are, after all, the city's most fated figure every summer that you come. Fame and riches are not born easily, says the emperor. Even when aloft, I feel their weight upon my back. Then perhaps monsieur would give some of his fortune to me, to lighten his load. I have watched you perform, the Emperor says. You have talent. Not as great as yours. It is true that I am greater. But for performance you need only a basic skill. The audience care not about skill. What they want is theatre, which is easy to learn. But they wanted always this theatre. In opera house boxes, at embassy receptions, at ballooning shows, at dinners in Prussian castles. Everywhere I go I am fated, and everywhere I cannot be myself. Everywhere I go I am ignored. I could only be myself. No better. Each set of eyelids holds the other, balancing their rival's gaze. I propose an exchange says the Emperor of the Air to the Sewer Mouse. You teach me to be invisible, and I teach you to be me, to take my place and dance across the wire. The mouse extends a shivering hand. He would sell his soul to the devil for a firewood bundle, only the devil has never made such an offer. This pact is wondrous beyond comprehension, like the riches promised by the conmen who shuffle cards along the river gauche. The deal is made. For a month they train. The emperor spins a wire across a crypt in the mouse's catacomb home, from grinning skull 
to grinning skull. But for a week, they practice only footwork, without taking to the wire. The emperor teaches his protégé all the 18 parts of a wire walker's foot, alongside the five cardinal actions. Levy on the anvil, he shouts, and the sewer mouse raises his soul's anvil accordingly, shuffling along a chalk line. Next comes Levy on the point, Levy on the palm, bridge the point, bridge the anvil. The mouse has taken the first step. Clutch the trinity! The trinity are the left foot's three smallest toes, the last prayerful clutch of many a performer. Instinctively, when overbalancing, a wire walker leans to his dominant side, meaning that the trinity is the penultimate chance for any right-handed balancer. If that falls, if that fails, only the desperate fingernail grip remains, the left hand snatching the wire. But for the, the performer must have fallen well. The mouse spends the second week walking the wire and falling well, left arm raised. Sustained concentration is key to wire walking. During frequent breaks, the mouse shows the emperor how to be invisible, how to slouch, to scowl, to linger, to melt into surroundings, how to wear rags. In the evening, the emperor takes the mouse to his apartment, teaching him cutlery, poise, elocution, attire. The mouse studies the society column of the newspaper. Finally, after a month, they are ready. It has been short, but the emperor is the globe's greatest wire walker. In any case, he insists that crowd-pleasing is 1920th showmanship, not skill. Ladies and gentlemen, after a month's absence to perfect new thrilling techniques, I give you the man who has never fallen, the talk of Paris, the emperor of the air. The crowd cheers. Clad in the emperor's clothes, steps out of the basket and onto the wire, thirty feet above their heads. He strides confidently to the middle and begins to juggle three oranges. The crowd claps politely. The mouse catches the oranges, pocketing two of them. He peels the third, opening a clasp knife to segment it. He eats leisurely feeling the crowd's frustrated anticipation below and letting it build, just as the emperor has taught him. Then he withdraws the other oranges, juggling them with his open knife. One, two, three. He is walking now, steadily, not looking at their thrill-flushed faces, not listening to their jeers, eyes fixed ahead at Notre Dame's spire, wondering in his mind's corner what lies beyond its horizon. He reaches the end to applause and reverses into a backwards walk, still juggling. One, two, three. Still juggling, he steps backwards along the... He has slipped. He has slipped, ladies and gentlemen, on an orange peel fragment. His body bends wildly, defiant against gravity. He writes himself pocketing the knife and oranges, but the wire bounces now against his motion, jerking him from left to right. He uses his arms to their fullest extent, leaning 45 degrees to the right, now to the left and back again. He lowers his knees, reducing his centre of gravity. His anvil tries to levy, but bridges instead. His palm is breached when it should be levied. A tramp in rags spots the inevitable fall before it happens. 
He leaps up and screams crazy words, ignoring the shushing crowd. Clutch the Trinity! He screeches. Clutch the Trinity! But the mouse clutches too late and falls. 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 His left hand snatches at the wire and the fingernail grip. He dangles from a single hand and then pulls himself up, stepping cautiously into the basket. The crowd explodes with flashbulbs, carries him shoulder high. He fell well. That night, he sleeps soundly in a gilded four-poster. Tomorrow evening, he goes to London. Rising at eleven, he lounges until a caller is announced. The caller describes himself as an old friend, but the mouse is flushed with invincibility. Show him in, he orders, and his command is obeyed. You don't seem to recognise me, Monsieur Lemperin, the old friend objects. Refresh my memory. Again. It's a strange game you play. Each year when you visit Paris, I come, and each year you deny recognizing me. The cruelty amuses you, I suppose. But this sick year, I see some guilt in your weary, haggard face. Fear. Guilt? Fear? The caller's eyes blaze. My son, Alexis. The boy idolized you when you were a two-bit street performer, a niece, scraping for survival. He became your assistant. One night he fell from a wire running from the plundered safe room of a Monaco casino. That morning you booked first-class steamer passage to India to study with a fakirs of the rope. You returned the next summer, still wealthy. Since then, my brave Alexis has slept. Slept in his bed at home, waking to wake up, to testify. Then what will you do? You're too famous, too recognised to flee. Every year your appearance changes a little. A new haircut, perhaps altered clothes, but always the same arrogant mannerisms. My magistrates will recognize you anywhere, pursuing you to the earth's ends once Alexis wakes and gives his testimony. Your long wire of good fortune wears thin, Emperor. Your balance grows precarious. When Alexis wakes, your fall will come. Alexis's father stands up to leave, looking for a reaction. He gets none. The mouse is preoccupied with calculations of how much money the globe's greatest wire walker might earn in London. He wonders if there are any trainable bridge walkers who balance across the Thames. Thank you, Cliff. Our second story of the evening will be God's Chair by Tom Mitchell. We read by Louisa Gallagher. Tom Mitchell is a teacher and a father. 
with fiction published at Londonist and Defenestration magazine, and sports writing at The Classical. Having been a featured finalist for the recent Twitter Fiction Festival, he tweets excessively to an ever-decreasing amount of followers. <laughs> he has also recently moved to Orpington. <laughs> Louisa, trained at Mountview, TV includes EastEnders, the sitcom trials, various commercials, and independent films including The Ultimate Truth and The Orange Tree. Theatre includes Girls' Night, Listen to My Heart, and the sitcom trials again at Edinburgh. She's an experienced voiceover artist. Who is that? God's Chair by Tom Mitchell. Sex never survives marriage, Dad shouted into the suburban street from his electric wheelchair. The words knocked about the tarmac and brick like a lost tennis ball. I was eight years old, and it had been a turbulent few weeks. It's not the sex, Frank, it's the wheelchair said Mum, shepherding me and Amy into the car, arms spread wide in the manner of a distracted limbo dancer. Dad's wheelchair was positioned a little back from the frame of the door. He had shouted about sex from our front room. One of the disadvantages, and minor in the grand scheme of things, to his chair was it being too wide to pass through the front door. I remember the twitching net curtains of elderly neighbours. Before Dad had come home pissed from the cricketers and sat on the TV remote in such a way to force its capricious buttons not only to switch on the set but tune to channel 245, a shopping channel, he had been extremely tall. And that was something. A significant signifier. I'd anchored my identity in the choppy waters of childhood with the truth that father was high and daughter was low. It's only natural that a child looks up to her dad. And when your dad is literally tall, it makes the metaphor all the clearer. And being both eight years old and short, and having a dad who didn't possess a shotgun or an interest in sport... Rankers with haircuts was how he described anybody athletic. Or a job to shout about. His height was my trump card. My silver bullet. However much Stacy banged on about her dad's BMW, or Dave whined about the executive box he went, went to, once went to Arsenal because his dad worked for important building contractors, I could always silence the playground with... Yeah, but my dad's seven foot tall. He wasn't. But he was big. And I loved the way he ducked to get through doors. Normal doors, too. Not dwarf doors. Not medieval doors. And I loved people joking about his missed basketball career and calling him lofty and asking him what the weather was like up there. Dad found it all less funny. Fuck off, he often said, and smiles withered. Two men with a dirty transit van, big hands and baseball caps dropped off the wheelchair. 
It came in a huge brown box. Mum thought it was a new washing machine. We'd always needed a new washing machine. I'd never been alive without us needing a new washing machine. It was one of life's great truths, like watching Neighbours or Man United winning everything. The scream of the machine's spin cycle comes to me in feverish nightmares even now. Mr. Solosky from next door once knocked down our front door because he thought we were killing a pig. We weren't killing a pig. It was the knackered washing machine that needed replacing. You have a back door, mate, asked the man in the New York baseball cap. His friend had a Los Angeles baseball cap. Dad, tall and always suspicious, asked why. It's not going to fit through this fucker said the man in the Los Angeles baseball cap then, following a nod from the man in the New York baseball cap, apologised for swearing in front of us girls. It was the first time I'd heard a door called a fucker. <laughs> it would turn out to be an afternoon of firsts. <laughs> the swearing baseball cap-wearing men were gone by the time Dad pulled open the box, the cardboard falling to the ground like booster rockets from the space shuttle. That's not a washing machine said Mum. And she was right. It was an electric wheelchair, night Rider black with knobs and buttons and comfy-looking cushions that made you feel warm just to look at it. Dad spent the afternoon assembling the thing. Silver rods and plastic-wrapped plastic were laid out on the garden's flattened grass and nettles. It looked like a robot autopsy. At one point, he tried borrowing the car battery, but Mum said she'd rip his balls off if he even went near it. <laughs> to do Dad justice, he was expert at controlling the chair from the off. He was sensitive to the sensitivity of the controls. His fingers showed more understanding than I'd ever seen displayed towards Mum when I'd looked through the scarring white light crack of their bedroom door. <laughs> if his employer... A man with a moustache, I'm sure, crawled off for its own nighttime adventures, was similarly impressed by Dad's handling of the machine. It didn't stop him from firing Dad within an hour of Dad's arrival at work. And, following that, one hour's, one informal warning and two written formal warnings relating to Dad's refusal to leave the wheelchair. But he can't fire me, it's discrimination, said Dad in the garden later, tuna stuck in the gaps between his teeth. There's paperwork that's got to be done. Not tightening, tightening, etc. Shit, I can do that in the chair. Dad worked as a scaffolder. <laughs> and it was the first time I'd ever heard him say etc. <laughs> Mum was in her bedroom sobbing. You could hear her gasping for air. It sounded like Paul, the fat lad during PE lessons. Like her lungs were curled up in embarrassment. But you're not disabled, Dad, I said, looking down at him, seeing how the hair at the back of his head twirled in a circle, like water down the drain. Not only was this the first time I'd seen the top of his head, it was the first time I dared contradict him. I might have expected him to give me a shout, to shout, to give me a bollocking. He was well capable of doing so, evidenced by the times he'd stepped on my Lego. He didn't, though. He beckoned me over. I came after he promised I wasn't in trouble. Put your arm around me, he said. And I felt half scared, half like I wanted to laugh. Here was Dad, in a top-of-the-range wheelchair, bought on his credit card, asking for a cuddle. 
the garden. I'm the same height as your little sister now, don't you forget that. I stepped back, and he held my glance like what he said was dead important. Anyway, he said, and stretched to pat my head, but he couldn't reach. Why do you want to be in a wheelchair all the time? asked my sister. Beats walking, grinned Dad. This didn't convince us. Teachers were always explaining the importance of walking and using our legs generally. Physical exercise helped with your spelling and sums because it worked up a sweat in your mind. Or something. Dad narrowed his eyes and edged the wheelchair towards our feet. God spoke to me on that shopping channel. He was middle-aged and sexy and had blonde hair. And he told me to buy this wheelchair. You two wouldn't want your dad to be contradicting God now, would you? God can turn you into salt and the like. Struck by the salty, mysterious power of our Lord, my sister and I shook our heads with the fragile innocence of the penitent. After we'd moved out to live with friendly bald Jim with the widescreen TV, Mum tried her best to keep us away from Dad. The court, ruled over by an unsmiling woman who was either the head teacher at my primary school or looked exactly like her, with that meter ruler nose and terminator stare, having had it explained that Dad's wheelchair was a lifestyle choice rather than a medical necessity, quickly curbed his visitation rights. <laughs> I remember Dad shouting about the Nazis and hellfire and damnation. It feels like a dream now, druggy in its smudged focus. I visited him shortly before he died. A room not much bigger than a coffin. Room enough, though, for a wheelchair at the foot of the bed. Something like a loyal dog. I don't think it was the wheelchair. It looked too new, but I didn't ask I didn't want to risk upsetting the man. He had trouble speaking as it was. The pain of nostalgia might short-circuit his brain. That day, there was something fetal to his body. His limbs hardly managed to raise the white sheets. His height must have been a childhood fantasy remembered with Father Christmas and God. The only things you're sure of as a child are those that don't exist yet. He beckoned me to his ear, just like you see in the films when some bad guy repents of a lifetime of evil to reveal some important plot point to the good guy. Dad didn't repent, then. Your mother, he wheezed. She left because of our love life, not the chair. You needed knowing. Are you married yet? Nodding. I felt the need to touch him, but... He looked too fragile to embrace. I'd not want to crack his ribs, something like candlesticks. As if he was a stray dog, I patted his head. He's watching, you know. Dad's eyes flicked to the ceiling. First off, I thought he meant a CCTV camera. But turning, I could see nothing but cream artex. Looking back to Dad, a smile almost split his face in two. He's up there. And he's watching. And when I die, I want you to bury me. <coughs> Coughing. Side table water offered. Recovery. <laughs> bury me in the chair, won't you, love? <laughs> I drove straight to Mum's. She'd outlived three husbands since leaving Dad. 
<laughs> the last had suffered a massive heart attack, the details foggy. Mum changed the conversation when asked about it, offering questions about my family, my job, the type she didn't usually ask. She brewed a pot of tea. All people like brewing tea. It makes them feel as if a lifetime of being English wasn't such a waste after all. <laughs> Bending over a teak coffee table, she looked her shrunk half a foot since my last visit. I sat on a sofa more cushioned than a chair. She didn't want to hear about Dad. She didn't ask if he still had his wheelchair. With her cherry blossom hair tight in a bun and the front room drowning in pictures of European dance floors, she is never happier than dancing with wild-eyed Italians to Europol. She told me that she didn't want to turn into one of those crook-backed women trapped in the past. I waited for a polite enough time until... Can I ask you a silly question? Mum stopped fussing over the tea and looked up. Her eyes sparkled like showroom refrigerators. Why did you leave, Dad? Why, really? Steaming liquid rolled from the teapot. Its sloshing reminded me of sleep. Not of feeling tired, but of the emptiness of night, the miniature death. I often dream of growing extremely tall and not stopping even when my head is crushed against the ceiling. And Mum swept the tea stream from one china cup to another without pause. Honestly, she said, it was the sex. I could get used to a wheelchair, but a woman, especially at the age I was back then, had certain needs. I could never get used to celibacy. Mind you, it never survives the marriage. What doesn't? The sex. And she asked how much sugar I wanted in my tea. <laughs> third story, the last one before the interval, will be Up So High, Feel So Low, by Jennifer Ripper. We read by Kim Scope. Jennifer lives in London, and is a freelance content writer by day, and a more interesting writer by night. Her first novel was written age six, and was a tale of an epic adventure starring her guinea pigs. She still writes epic adventures, but with less guinea pigs. <laughs> Kim is an actress and puppeteer who trained at East 15. Recent credits include Boris and Sergei's Astonishing Freakatorium and CCBC, CBBC's Strange Hill High. She's also performed Shakespeare at the New Wolseley Ipswich, taught puppetry in Peru, and performed at Glastonbury. Kim. Feels So Low by Jennifer Ricard. Don't come near me, John bellowed at the policeman, the wind almost whipping his words away as he leaned over the precipice. I'm going to jump! He'd seen this bit in countless films. He expected the policeman to freeze, to raise his hands, maybe back away a bit and speak soothingly. What he didn't expect was the policeman to shrug and say, Go on then. John blinked. 
Sorry, what? The policeman gave him a long look, as if he suspected John was a bit touched on the head. I said, he repeated, go on then. Do it if you're going to. John paused. The world swam beneath him, glittering with lights. He was so high up. Aren't you meant to be talking me out of this? Meh, the policeman said, leaning on the side of the railing. The right side, not the side that John was currently leaning off. And pulled out a cigarette. I've been in this business a long time, so it gets repetitive. He lit the cigarette with a flash of his lighter. John hesitated. If this is some sort of ploy to get me to come back over there, it's not going to work. No ploy, said the policeman. I'm not playing any mind tricks. I can't be bothered, frankly. John felt a stab of irritation. This was his moment. People were meant to be worrying about him. What was this man doing not worrying about him? <laughs> then why are you here? He snapped. The policeman took a drag of his cigarette. <sighs> Got a bunch of supervisors downstairs. Promotions practically in the bag. Had to at least make a show of trying to talk you down. Right, said John. He stared down at the ground. He was very far away. Oh, it was very, very far away. Oh, it was really, very, extremely far away. So, you don't really care what I do. You jump, you jump, said the policeman. Nothing I can do about it. I tried my hardest to bring you back. But some people just can't be saved. But it all worked out. I'll come back down, face drawn, eyes sorrowful. My voice will tremble a bit. Brother officers will slap me on the back, tell me they're sorry. My superiors will feel sorry for me. And that sympathy will lead to a promotion. It's going to be great. <laughs> John paused again. It made sense and all, but it still didn't seem quite fair. He'd spent all that effort climbing up the building and hanging off a railing until somebody noticed and called the cops, and now it was going to be for nothing. Look, he put in haltingly. I know you don't care and all, um, but could you just go through the motions? Why? asked the policeman. If you're going to go, you're going to... No, look, John interrupted. This is my moment. I'm not having you fucking it up, okay? So just do what I say. The policeman sighed. Flipped the cigarette away. I suppose I've got some time to waste. All right. He took in a deep breath. So, why are you doing it? John stared down at the lights until they started to blur before his eyes. This was more like it. She left me. He moaned. <laughs> I loved her and she left me. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake, said the policeman. What? What's wrong with that? It's so cliched said the policeman. Could you not have thought of something better than that? Uh, said John. Like what? I don't know, said the policeman. I'm not you. But there's got to be something more interesting that you've done. Doomed love affair is just so... Well, it's so corny, frankly. Think of something else. Oh, John considered his life for a very long time. Well, there was that 
Guy I killed? <laughs> the policeman hesitated. Pardon? Oh, I, I killed a man. Don elaborated. Oh, it was a while back. I'd almost forgotten about it. Yeah, he sort of tried to steal my wallet, so I uh, beat him to death and chucked his body in a skip. Will that do for suicide? Uh, said the policeman, off kilter for the first time in their conversation. Well, yeah, most people would feel guilty about that. Oh, right, said John, cottoning on. And the guilt would lead them to kill themselves, yeah? Uh, said the policeman. Yeah? Cool, we'll go with that then, said John. He returned his attention to the precipice below. My life's not worth living. <laughs> he moaned as convincingly as he could. I'm up so high, but feel so low. I can't go on, not after I killed. What's his name? <laughs> right, said the policeman. He tried to pull himself together. Uh, well, that was a pretty bad thing to do. But maybe you should try and make amends for your actions in another way? Like what? said John. He swayed as dangerously as he could without actually letting go of the railing. Oh, you know, um, by going to prison? The policeman suggested. Well, that sounds a bit boring. John commented, getting into the swing of things. I mean, going to prison is so... Well, it's a lot of effort, and the ground is right there. <laughs> yeah, the John muttered. But, prison? John snapped out of his performance. You know, you're a bit shit at this, he complained. Here I am, hanging off a building, and all you can say is, well, if you come back over, you can go back to prison. I mean, seriously, who'd give you a promotion? The policeman drew himself up, offended. I happen to have a very successful rate. Thanks. Really, said John. Really? said the policeman. After all, you don't want to kill yourself now, do you? John paused. He stared down at the ground. Oh, he said. Quite, said the policeman. Well, no, I don't, John replied. But only because you're not doing this properly. <laughs> exactly, said the policeman. That's what most people want. They want you to do it properly. All the drama and sympathy and shit. If you don't give them that, most of them will come back from the edge in pure irritation. He hesitated. Of course, some of them don't. Some of them don't want to be saved and all. And some of them need the uh, softly, softly approach, which I can't provide. So they just jump. And maybe they wouldn't have jumped if they'd been a bit nicer or pandered to their needs a bit. But maybe they would have. It's not really my fault, is it? Uh, said John. Well, yes, actually, it, it is. The policeman shrugged. So long as I get the promotion, I don't really care. John considered his situation. It was cold and windy, and his fingers were cramping on the railing. He thought longingly of a nice hot bath and a good book. All right, he conceded. I'm coming back over. He turned and moved to climb over the railing, but if he started to do so, the policeman's hand landed heavily on his chest. 
Hang on a sec, he said. John froze. What? Well, said the policeman, if you come downstairs, what's the first thing you're going to say to my supervisors? You're going to tell them how awful I am, aren't you? Well, yeah, said John. Pretty psycho, you know. <laughs> the policeman surveyed him for a long moment. The thing is, he said apologetically, I really need that promotion. I've got three kids to feed, you know, and you are a murderer. Some people would say you deserve to die. Uh, said John. Yeah, well, but... Sorry, said the policeman. And pushed him backwards. It didn't take long in the end. Not long at all. Afterwards, the policeman turned his face to the wind for a while, the freezing breeze spiking tears into his eyes. Then, he set his shoulders low, put on his most defeated expression, and made his slow way back downstairs. is short by Simon Sylvester. Tell you what, another reporter come to see me. I talked to them through Perspex bars. Oh, I've been talking through Perspex bars forever. She's writing a piece about installation art, no less. She wants my story. Oh, ain't you heard it all before, I says. I spoke to a hundred reporters. Not to me, she says. I want it from the horse's mouth. Well, what else is there to do? I ain't going anywhere, thanks to that sodding contract. Stuck in this horrible place, with people watching what you're up to. Sent me crackers at the start. But now I see that time is like a leaking tap. Drip, drip, dripping. Time drips through me and I get a little rustier every day. She's watching me, face walked by perspex. Are you sitting comfortably? I says, though I can see she ain't. Then I'll begin. I was out of a job, that was the trouble, and this card goes up in the window of Sal's cap. The card says, easy work, three meals a day, minimum wage, accommodation provided, all bills paid, minimum 12-month contract. My jaw hits the floor. Well, sounds a blinder, doesn't it? Well, I'll pinch the card from the window before another body happens on it. There's an address on the back. I turn up to a right posh house. And there's three or four people like me down on their luck, all kicking about a waiting room. No one talks. One at a time they get summoned into a room and one at a time they troop out looking grum. Then it's my turn. It's a grand room. There's a big old desk, and behind it sits a bloke scribbling things. Bald head, thick glasses, 
you know the sort. He sees me and he stops scribbling. He stares and stares. He stands up, not blinking, and approaches me proper close. Oh, yes, he says. Oh, yes, yes, you're perfect. Perfect for what, I says, thinking you might be after something I ain't prepared to give. <laughs> this might sound peculiar to you, he beams, and then he leans in close, and I can smell his bald head. But I, <laughs> but I rather think I want to turn you into art. It turns out he's some sort of big shot artist, living art this, postmodern that, redefining aesthetic and intellectual boundaries, the next thing. I'll tell you what, he don't half like the sound of his own voice. He shows me pictures of a huge glass box the size of a shipping crate. There's a glass room suspended on cables, glass all round. The front is bars like a prison cell, I mean, they're made of perspex. I'll pay you, says the artist, to live in this box, to live in it every day for an entire year. <laughs> Everything is see-through. Floors, the ceiling, everything. There's a perspex bed, a perspex chair, a perspex table. One corner is a perspex toilet and a glass shower with see-through pipes running to the floor. It's a masterpiece, he says. We'll make history. This is the deal. Three meals a day tea and coffee, papers, books, magazine, TV, all the satellite channels, whatever I want, he says. It's glorious, he says, going a bit glazed. <laughs> well, first, I muse upon the inherent ethical issues of personal privacy, and then I muse upon the cash. <laughs> well, of course, I says I'll bloody do it, don't I? Contract is the size of a book. I sign where he tells me, here and here and here and here. Keep the pen, he says. I had them specially made. The pen is made of perspex. There's <laughs> <laughs> a proper par big party on the preview night. The artist drapes a sheet across the whole box, so I can't see out. But there's that many people talking. All I can hear is a roar. The hubbub dies down, so the great artist can talk about his achievement. Then the curtain gets pulled away from the box with a whoosh, and hundreds of faces stare up at me, silent. And then the chatter starts up even louder. There's applause growing in waves and photographers going ballistic. All these cameras going flash, 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 flash. The great artist takes a bow. I'm hanging maybe three stories up, bang in the middle of this huge hall, cables stretching way out to the ceiling. Everything smells new. 
They had to nip me in with a cherry picker. <laughs> to start off, I, I stick to the corners, thinking the whole thing's about to fall apart around me. Then I start taking little steps towards the centre, the box swaying underfoot. Weird feeling, having glass below me, glass above, just hanging there, stuck between two places and feeling like I'm sure to fall. There's a slogan carved onto the brick wall across from me. It says, Ars longa, theta brevis. I found out this means art is long, life is short. I tell you what I think about that. I don't quite get it. <laughs> I look at my watch. The big hand turns a full circle. The little hand shifts so slow, I don't see it move, but I hear it. days to go. <laughs> well, it actually weren't all that bad. They ran food on the cherry picker three times a day. I watched a lot of telly. Sometimes I was on the news. I took showers and went toilet right where everyone could see. <laughs> so many people taking pictures, it was like living in a mirror. 361 days to go. Days were exactly the same. Now, like they stand from a mould, journalists come from all across the world to stand on the cherry picker and interview me. 355 days. Tourists taking photos, standing underneath the box. 342 days. The gallery man says I'm the most popular installation for years. Takings is going through the roof. I think about my paycheck. 331 days to go out. I notice that if you take in a sketch pad, you can stay all day for free and nobody stops you. <laughs> 328 days. Through the glass, all the colours look the same. 311 days. I walk in circles in exactly 60 steps around my box. 300 days. Oh, well, there's always cameras, always tourists, always students doing charcoal pictures in their sketchbooks. I'm not hello to the ones that I recognise. <laughs> 278 days to go and my watch says tick tock. 259 days, tick-tock, I, I can always hear it. 232, 193, that money makes my toes curl. Ninety-nine days. Working out what to do with my paycheck at the end of it. 
89 days, tell you what, I'm getting drunk. Then <laughs> <laughs> I said, I get my teeth done. 72 days, I go for a long, long walk. 67 days, I dream about that walk. 63 days, I dream about crooked paving slabs underfoot. 51 days, and trees. I dream about trees. 34 days, I dream about the Thames through Greenwich. Flowing from the cutty sark down to the dome, hundred-year-old clay pipe stems on the beach, the meat smell from the brewery. Twenty-one days, three weeks to go, I dream about sitting in a park, sun on my face. Twenty days, I dream about going back to Sal's cat, spinning coppers on the tabletops. Fifteen days, I dream about shiny glasses, glasses that are so shiny they're See through. Thirteen days. I dream. I just dream. There's a week to go. One week, a year down, and, and only a week to go. There's more journalists than ever, up and down on the cherry picker, chatting to me through the perspex bars. I don't mind makes the time fly, don't it? And then, sudden like, the time has flown. One day to go. And then it happens. The great artist comes back to see me. First time in a year. <laughs> it's after hours. The place all hushed and dark. Through the glass floor of my box, I see him on the cherry picker, slowly rising upwards, the wine a bit growing louder, more frayed at the edges. Perfect, he says. Perfect. How are you? Itching to get out, I says. Can't wait. Yes, he says. Well, there might be something of a problem. For a moment I see everything in perspex. You what? You've been wonderful, he says, smiling white and wide. You really have. Gallery is delighted. You've broken records. Everyone wants a piece of you. And uh, the thing is, you've been sold to Barcelona. <laughs> <laughs> Success, he says. 
It's right here, you see, and here, and here, and here. You're part of it now. You're part of history, Lord. My, my signature, my, my own signature in, in black and white. There's a rushing feeling in my head. He starts speaking, but I barely hear it. He'll be well looked after over there, he says. Plenty of sun. It'll be nice, he says. Oranges and lemons. I can hear some pulls. I'm feeling faint. I'm feeling dizzy. I don't know exactly what happens next. There's a ticking noise, a tick-tock noise. One day to go, I, I look at my hands. They're holding onto the perspex bars, clenched white around the knuckles. The artist smiles at me. His teeth gleam in the dark. I said I'd make you famous, he says. Tick-tock. I reach through the bars. And I push him off the cherry picker. <laughs> <laughs> push him right off. It happens in slow motion. And it and it takes forever. And it takes a split second. My contract spills everywhere. Hundreds and hundreds of pages seesaw into the floor, three stories down. Just makes a pretty pattern on the ground. <laughs> I've got all night to look at him, to watch him through the grass. Tell you what, feels like the first splash of colour I've seen in a year. <laughs> and down there, he grins at me, a perspex pen glinting in his hand. The reporter's dictaphone stops whizzing, Bachelor is dead. It's all dead. What happened then? She whispers. A shock? Oh, you know the story. I says it was all on CCTV. The judge don't have any choice. The reporter looks around her. Well, it's better than prison, she says. <laughs> I look right back at her. What's the difference? I says. I'm still in the perspex box. The day I signed the contract, I became part of the art. Whatever rights I had is in that bit of paper. When the artist died, the price went through the roof. <laughs> <laughs> We've been through the courts, all the rest of it. Technically, I ain't a person anymore. I'm art. And even if I was out of the box, I'd go to jail. Instead... I've been to Barcelona. I've been to Moscow. To New York. To Berlin. And I'll tell you something else. I've worked it out. Art's longer, beta brevis. I finally found out what it means. Now he's dead, everyone reckons he's a genius. They say I'm his masterpiece. He goes down in history. And I'm stuck in a glass box like a butterfly on a pin. Life in the touching art, ain't it? <laughs> oh, you gotta laugh. <laughs>
by scale of 1 to 10 by Meg Tolton. You read by Harry Dobby. Meg is a writer and filmmaker based in London. She just completed her Master's in Media, Communications and Development at the LSE, and she's now very happy to be able to write something other than her dissertation. Harry's credits include Eno's multimedia opera Sunken Garden, which premiered at the Barbican, and then went on a worldwide tour. Hermia in UK and international tour of Midsummer's Night Dream, Mary Jane Kelly in Jack the Ripper's London, and Kelly in Evans. Harry's represented by Rosemary Mountain. Harry. On a scale of 1 to 10, by Meg Charlton. People always wonder if I've ever used it while having sex. As soon as they find out what I do and they've had enough to drink, that's what they ask. That, or they squeeze my arm and tell me, you're so brave. I've heard this enough by now to know that it's not a compliment. It's just code for, you must be a fucking masochist. I don't know. Maybe they're right. I remember the first demonstration. We were in the operating theatre in Gelderwing at the hospital and they had Dr Crowther strapped to a gurney and Dr Ang with his back to him and noise-cancelling headphones on. They began with a needle. As it touched Dr Crowther's pinky, I saw Dr Ang begin typing. His answer flashed on the screen that hung above them. One, left pinky. Next, it was the lit match. They both winced in unison. Four, right ankle. Remember, Dr. Ang said, focus on the sensation, not your fear of it. Where is it located? What is its intensity? Because it's not really happening to you. There's no danger, just sensation. Remember, you can remain detached while the patient cannot. The two of them worked all the way up to a scalpel to the arm, seven, before they both screamed and the supervising physician had all the nursing students leave the gallery. I asked to begin training the next day. I practiced with my roommate, Michael, another nursing student, after official instruction. We'd take turns. What does this feel like? I stuck myself with the tip of a safety pin. One, he said, right thigh. I turned away so I couldn't see what he picked out for himself. He took a long time hovering over his options. I told him not to be a pussy about it and then felt a rush of pure, clean pain jolt through my stomach. I squeezed my eyes shut. Be detached, be aware. This isn't really happening to you. Focus on the pain. Where is it located? What is its intensity? The sensation settled into something I could name. Six, I said, smiling. Left foot. Then the feeling disappeared. I turned, took off my headphones and saw Michael, the sensors ripped from his skin, vomiting into a sink at the edge of the room, missing a sliver of his toe. I've learned, in the months since I've been certified and had to relay my results to waiting doctors, that people always underestimate six. 
I've also learned in those months what it feels like to have a six or close to it in your spleen, in your L4 vertebra, and disconcertingly for me as a woman, in your testicles. <laughs> for whatever it's worth, Michael didn't pass his certification. The machine has been a big breakthrough, obviously, even if it wasn't made for totally altruistic reasons. They pitched it as something to save cancer patients or people with internal bleeding. People suggested they could hook husbands up to it while their wives went through labour. <laughs> that got some angry responses. The empathy machine, though. That's what a lot of people called it. But really, it got money to determine if opiate addicts were in pain versus withdrawal. Big money in opiates, a lot of angry people, a lot of pharmacists at gunpoint. How do you determine if someone's in enough pain that they need oxycodone? Why don't you hook them up to a machine, run by a trained professional? Then, they get a little printout that they can take to the pharmacy. Right, seven, right abdomen. Sale of opioids has gone up, surprisingly, or maybe not, since the machine protocol was, in, uh, was instituted. I don't like working with people like that, though. I like sitting with the pain for longer, trying to really feel it. I actually have become less aware of pains in my own body. It's hard to pay attention to your own sensations after focusing on other people's bodies all day. But, yes, it did ruin my sex life, as long as I'm being honest with you. And not just because everyone normal saw the scars on my arm from all the practice sessions and got freaked out, or because the only people who wanted to sleep with me once I found once they found out what I did were total freaks. It ruined my sex life because I'd just go blank when someone touched me. I kept waiting to feel the way my skin must feel to them, the way they felt kissing me, the way they felt when I touched them. I kept waiting for my empathy machine to kick in. Do you like that? They'd ask, even if they didn't care if I did or how I answered. The only thing I could ever say back was, do you? It was the question I felt most used to asking. Can you feel this? How does this feel to you? One patient, Claire, who had osteosarcoma, seven, right here told me that if she felt well and she had a boyfriend, it'd be the first thing she'd use the machine for, hooking up to it and seeing what sex felt like for a man. I explained to her that it wouldn't work that way. It only registered pain receptors. She looked really sad when I told her that. Oh well, Claire said. Anything's worth a try, right? She passed away a few months later. I've only felt 110. That's the other thing people always wonder after the sex thing. She was an old woman, 90, drowning in the fluid of her own lungs, a solid eight, by the way. And I was hooked up to her to determine if her chest pain originated from a problem with her pick line when she had a massive heart attack with me still connected. I screamed. I'm not too proud to admit that. They disconnected me and tried to revive her, but I could feel her in my veins all day. The feeling of my own heart exploding, clotting, collapsing. 
They said I could go home early, but I waited until my kids got there. They were all crying. They gave the oldest, her son, the printout from the machine. Ten. Chest. Left side. Maybe the machine could register pleasure. It wasn't designed that way, but like Claire said, anything's worth a try. But it seems disrespectful to use it that way. It's held the pain of tumours and addiction and gunshot wounds and so many other things that matter so much more than pleasure could. Because pleasures you keep seeking out again and again and again. But pain, most people don't. I mean, they think they do, but not really. Not true pain. Not sixes and above. I think those mean more than pleasures because they're singular. At least for most people. I still keep my skills sharp. Pardon the pun. I'm a certifier now. And I have each new round of students practice on me first. They always start with the needle. I smile with encouragement as I prick my finger and the blood bubbles up. One, they type, left pinky. Good job, I tell them. You're so brave. Thank you, Harry. Before our final story of the evening, some notices. The Liars will return on the 14th of October with our Halloween slash and burn. I predict a bug plan or two, so do join us for that one. The next submission deadline is for November, Vice and Virtue. Details of this, along with all of the year's remaining themes and videos and recordings from previous events, are all on the Liars website. So, our final story of the evening will be Man Overboard by Barry McKinnon, to be read by David McGrath. Barry's play Elysium Nevada was nominated for Best New <coughs> Play in the Irish Theatre Awards of 2009. He's editing a collection of short stories drawn from his late 1970s London diaries and attends the National Film School in Dublin, where he's studying for an MA in screenwriting. David's performed the Lions League at Wilderness Festival this year. He's also performed the Spread the Word, Rattle Tales, and won Story Slam. He'll be reading his story, The Elephant in the Tower, at Iraq Impress's Beastly Tales on the 17th of this month. David. Man Overboard by Barry McKinley. London, October 1979. My boss called out as I passed the office. Oh, 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 Jack! I find conversations that begin with oh, 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 never end well. <laughs> he was more nervous and awkward than usual. My, um, my sister, she, um, well, she gave me these tickets for the theatre tonight, and Chris... I would love to go to the theatre with you, I said, even though I would have preferred to stuff a live badger in my pants. <laughs> it's an Irish play, he blurted out. <coughs> the 
right, that too, life budgets. <laughs> the play was even worse than expected. A murky stage draped with fishing nets and an upturned curric. Every now and then, a sonorous mick pranced onto the boards and cursed the Irish skies. The rain never stopped and the cast was bedraggled and drenched, like paths leaving a sinking ship. What do you think? Chris asked at the intermission. I drank a Bacardi and Chris ordered a cup of tea. He genuinely did. <laughs> what is it with the Brits? The Zulus might be attacking, but you'd still hear the sound of a whistling kettle rising above the war cries. <coughs> it's fabulous, I said. Because when you go to the theatre, you have to use at least one queer word. He sipped his tea and nodded. He ate exactly half his digestive biscuit to indicate satisfaction, but not overindulgence. He dusted the crumbs from his fingertips and touched the corner of his mouth with a tissue. Is there anything better than live theatre? He asked, and I immediately thought of Sex Pistols. People can say whatever they want about the Kingsmen, Sonics, Mysterians, MC5 and Early Underground. Until Anarchy in the UK, it was all just so much amplified twang. The Pistols released four singles in one album. They blew into the scene in 1976, and by 77, it was all over. They were history. They were gone, and they knew they were gone. Theatre, on the other hand, refuses to accept its own demise. <laughs> it's been lying in the grave for 2,000 years, but every time you throw down a shovel of dirt on it, that bastard sick back up and soliloquizes. <clears throat> Fabulous, he said. Fabulous, I repeated. But in my mind, I was clobbering it with the shovel. The end of intermission bell rang, and I felt like a punch-drunk boxer returning to the ring. We took our seats and watched a lone drummer limping across the stage, rapping out a beat on a baron while the sky turned a portentous black. Chris pressed his shoulder against mine, and hidden by the darkness, I managed to swallow a Percocet painkiller because I was truly in pain. As our good friend, our Lord Jesus Christ, used to say, I have suffered. <laughs> when the last curric was sunk, the last father beaten to a pulp, the last pint of porter slobbered over, and the last donkey race ran, we shambled onto Shaftesbury Avenue with a thousand confused bricks. To them, the island next door was a more enigmatic place than ever. A place to send your soldiers, but not your tourists. <laughs> I know this great little Indian restaurant in Soho, Chris said, and the night I thought was over had only just begun. <laughs> the Taj was upscale, full of chrome and mirrors rather than brass and flak wallpaper. The waiters wore sharp suits and white turbans that looked like crash helmets made from giant onions. You must really tell me more about your country, Chris said, and so I invented the Ireland of his imagination, full of picturesque nonsense, thatched cottages, accordion players at the crossroads, one-room schoolhouses presided over by unshaved Latin scholars. I was attempted to throw in a leprechaun or two, but uh, somehow managed to resist. Enchanting, he said. Enchanting. 
I repeated. Chris stared into my eyes with longing, and it was time for evasive action. I reached into my pocket and pulled out a block of hash. Do you know what this is? I asked. Yes, I, I do, he said, frantically looking about the restaurant. Or at least I think I do. When I was in college, it was offered, but I said yes. <clears throat> now is your chance to say yes. I cut the cube in two and slid his portion across the tablecloth, leaving a green-brown smudge on the linen. He quickly covered it with his hand. You want to smoke this in, in here? He said. Who said anything about smoking? I popped the block in my mouth, chewed, and swallowed. After some embarrassed hesitation, he picked up his portion and did likewise. Our meals arrived on brass platters, and a man with an onion head spooned rice onto our plates. Chris dipped his fork and put it to his lips. Hmm, simple call, he said. I was alarmed. Use of French language is generally a prelude to sodomy. <laughs> I felt the overwhelming need to do something heterosexual, like scrimshaw whalebone or run outside and lay tarmac. <laughs> will I know when the effect starts to happen? He asked. You will know, I replied. You will definitely know. Dessert was a variety of fritters dipped in a mixture of bazooka bubblegum and melted rubber glove. <laughs> I stared into the plate and tried to find a small corner of the mess that was edible. When I looked up, Chris was smiling stupidly, and then he laughed. I've never heard him laugh before, but I wasn't sure if the squeal was the result of English public school or the quality Moroccan hash. Either way, people near the tables were looking at us. The waiters, you know, huddled in a corner and exchanged Hindi words of concern. And then Chris did it again. This time it was pirate from the Spanish main means little old lady on a roller coaster. A waiter came to our table and asked if everything was okay. Perhaps we might like some tea. Are you expecting the Zulus? I said. Chris doubled over from underneath the edge of his tablecloth. I could hear him choke on the word Zulus. The waiter waited for Chris to recover, but the effect was only beginning. When Chris sat upright, a change had taken place. Something dark and inexplicable was happening in the space where sense was generally made. I feel strange. You're made to feel strange. I feel like I'm going to die. You're meant to feel like you're going to die. I tried to restart the laughter, but his eyes missed it over and a tear emerged. The waiter, standing awkwardly beside us all the time, looked down at me and said the worst thing he possibly imagined he could say. Well-intentioned and delivered in a gentle tone of voice, but devastating. Is your dad all right? <laughs> Chris looked first at me, then the waiter, and then, with rising panic, the exit. He's fine, I said. He just needs some air. Chris knocked over the chair in a sudden bolt for the door, and I was so high between the pills and the pot, I could have wiped my mouth with a ten-pound note and left four napkins as a tip. 
Outside, I caught a glimpse of Cogtail disappearing around the corner. Chris! I called, but he didn't answer. When I caught up to him, he was clawing at the shutters of the Leicester Square tube. I have to get home! The tube isn't running. He thought I was your dad! (laughs) What was I supposed to say? Along with being twice my age, Chris was critically unfashionable. (laughs) With his tweeds, his box clock braces and his cap-toe oxfords, he could have just as easily been mistaken for my granddad. Was he too blind to see the vast gap between us? I wore black boots with Cuban heels, grey cords and a quilted Sun Yat-sen jacket. Girls turned around to watch me on the street. Did I bloody well have to spell it out for him? Maybe I did. Maybe I needed to shout it in his face as loud as I could. I grabbed him by the lapels, pushed him up against the shop window. It was like to try and position a mannequin with broken legs. Don't you get it, Chris? I like women. A look of complete bafflement spread across his face. So do I. You said, <laughs> so do I, you bloody fool. I just thought we were friends. He pushed past me and flagged down a t- taxi. He jumped inside and was gone. Oh, I said to the emptiness of Cherry Cross Road. Oh, that was not expected. <laughs> I turned and started to walk with no destination in mind. I paused on a high hallboard and said, Oh! Once more. A minicab cruised up beside me and stopped. I got in and gave the address of the dealer in Walthamstow. The driver nodded and swung the cab around, fiddling with the radio until he found some music that sounded like a cat caught in a bicycle wheel. We stopped at a traffic light beside a chip shop in Stoke Newington. Inside, a plump girl sat on a plastic chair with a brown paper bag on her lap. Above her, a sagging helix of flypaper speckled with tiny death. She wore a white t-shirt and white pants. A roll of fat circled her waist like a rainbow. She pulled a deep fried stabiloi from the bag and was about to take a bite when she saw me looking. (laughs) Ashamed, she tried to dip the meaty log back inside the bag. (laughs) This is what happens when fat girls play hide the sausage. (laughs) (laughs) I looked away. She looked away. The cab moved on through the night like a wet shadow skimming on streets I had never seen before. Well, I was surprised by the size of this fucking place. Before I came here, London was Big Ben, Tower Bridge, the House of Parliament, all squeezed together in like a little snow dome. But now it's giant red brick virus expanding exponentially, eating up the healthy green body of the home counties, killing everything it touches. 
A man on a grasshopper green Kawasaki pulled up beside us. The bike sounded like a chainsaw stuck in knotty hardwood, and when he blipped the throttle, an oily vapour coughed out from three fluted pipes. He tapped his left foot, cut down a gear, and swept into the lane ahead of us. His tail bulb, shaken by vibration, signalled a message of bursts of three. Three long flashes. I remembered from my days in the Sea Scouts that this was the letter O. Oscar. Man overboard. I thought about Chris up to his neck, waving, looking for a ship. Looking for friendship. I thought about the Irish Sea, the North Bull Lighthouse, and a sweeping beam that pointed the way to England. Three long flashes. The letter O. Oscar, man overboard. Chris, bewildered in the back of his taxi, the swell of London rising and falling between us, him going up and me coming down. My boss would never call me into his office again. He would never look at me shyly. There would be no more nights at the theatre, no more tea and digestive biscuits, no more Zulus and Indian dinners. All future contact would be purely professional. But the awkwardness would sit between us like a big rock. Eventually he would have to let me go. With a cold handshake and a swift, Cheerio! The cab driver looked in his rearview mirror and said, Did you just say something? I said, Conversations that begin with O, O, Oh, never end well. Thank you, David. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is that. Before you ascend to street level or descend into even further depravity. <laughs> Please give hearty thanks to all of the authors and to our actors for the roller coaster you have just been on. It's been emotional. Good night. <laughs>